This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 164. Today on our show, Russell Irig from the Cincinnati Art Museum. It's really interesting to hear like people's takes on things because they're very dissimilar to what I perceive. <laughs> I don't think I have... I'm a very bad judge of what like the public would like, I think, because I based on my own expectations. I, I like very different things. Russell is the Associate Director of Interpretive Programming at the Art Museum, and he joins us to discuss the museum's history, its historic relationship with the Art Academy, how it acquires works and manages that whole collection, and a whole lot more. Now, we had a slight problem with the recording. I got this brand new laptop, and it is great, and it's really, really fast. In fact, it's so fast, I'm not used to it not making me wait to do certain things. Like before, I would be like, Wait, you want to Google chat with your co-workers and you want to open a photo? You're going to have to wait a second there, fella. This is going to take a minute. So anyway, I have a much faster laptop now. Well, it's so fast that uh, when I was clearing up a whole bunch of things on the computer, I closed the recording uh, software with the interview in it, and along with it, our interview with Russell. Now, fortunately, Russell recorded his end, so I kind of had to recreate our questions, so it kind of comes out this American life-like, but hopefully it isn't uh, too distracting. And he did most of the talking, and he had the most interesting things to say anyway. You don't really need, you know, me babbling in there. So anyway, uh, if you're liking the podcast, despite all that, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk to Russell from the Cincinnati Art Museum. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati. C-I-N-C-I-N-N-E-T-I-Cincinnati. She came down from Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm at Cincinnati. Cincinnati. And he majored in drawing, which he explains is a little different than illustration. Yeah, I, I, I drawing like it sounds like if you you would imagine that drawing and illustration would be like pretty similar programs, but they are in fact incredibly different. Um, about as two different uh, approaches as you could have <laughs> in a school, because. Um, yeah, drawing was like a relatively new uh, emphasis. I, I mean, I think I got in on like the second year it was available and you know it was uh, gary gaffney was the the chair of that or the head of it whatever and the uh you know gary's approach was totally like you can draw with your body through space i mean yeah you could you could get away with whatever and i think every every art school has a program that becomes like that like that's the catch all like i just you know, whatever it's fine and uh you know i've i've talked to people who were like their printmaking department was that um where like people were making like video work and stuff in print and like okay um and so for us it was totally drawing drawing was like the way that like yeah you could do whatever i mean yeah i i recorded a radio drama i think my senior year <laughs> that was part of my like that was part of my uh that was totally part of my thesis was a radio drama so you know i, I mean there were some drawings uh but uh definitely not as many as you might expect based on that name i mean i do like to draw <laughs> like <laughs> i mean it's not it's not untrue um, <laughs> but but still both programs are very big at the art academy as russell explains very big yeah, very big. Um, well, I mean, so from my perspective, and just in, well, A, illustration is more speaking almost towards a career than it is necessarily a specific way of making art. So when you say illustration, yeah, a lot of people imagine drawing, but I mean, many illustrations are painted or collaged or, you know, like digital. I mean, it could be made of any things. And the, the, jo the job of illustration um, is to sort of be supportive of other material. So like, you know, you are, yeah, you are making something that is in support of 
an article or a book or, you know, like many things. And then drawing, I mean, drawing traditionally has not been seen as a finished product in the the big scheme of history of art. So, I mean, that's another reason I think it, it could be seen as like kind of a radical uh, <laughs> approach in terms of like a, a major or like an emphasis in a college program is, is simply that the fact that it was for many years considered like the step along the way to making a painting, which like painting was obviously the finished product, but um, drawing was like about idea generation and about getting things down quickly um, and a tool for helping you learn and for getting you better at painting essentially. But, you know, they are different. I mean, in another way is that like painting and drawing, drawing to me is always about an interaction of the material and surface. So like, It's about light going through a material, hitting the page and bouncing back at you. Whereas painting is not necessarily about that. Painting is more opaque and you're not necessarily seeing the canvas and the way that those two surface and material interact in the same way that I think you do with the drawing. Um, The page is really important in drawing, at least to me. So that was a really long-winded answer. Sorry. Russell also explained how an artist's sketches aren't always necessarily related to the finished product or painting. In 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 historical like in a historical sense, yeah, that has been the case. Um, and that that is like when you look at an artist's sketches and things that they weren't really something that were intended to be seen. Um, paper is is um, fragile. You know, that's another thing. Like, it's harder to display and keep paper. Paper is more light sensitive. Um, You know, that's something at the museum we deal with constantly. So while we do have, like, a pretty huge collection of works on paper, um, which includes prints and and photos as well and and drawings, um, those things can't be on display all the time because they destroy themselves by just being on display. Like they, they fall apart by being in light. So they have like really short life span. So that's another reason is like, yeah, you can't really sell drawings for as much as you can paintings. (laughs) It's like not as practical, but that's why printmaking is a smart uh, move because you can make multiples, you know, and then that's actually like the secret real moneymaker in the world of art is prints because you can make a lot of them and sell them for less than you would one big artwork. But they, you know, you have all of these multiples that can be sold for, you know, collectively make a good, a good profit. So I related a story at this point about how when I worked in Pittsburgh at the Carnegie Museum, I uh, went and saw an exhibit at a private gallery of some sketches by Medigliani, uh, the famous uh, Italian French artist and uh the sketches were so much different than his paintings because they were so simple and it's like he could have done them you know very quickly and at this point russell you pointed out you know there's kind of uh, an immediacy to drawing and sketching that you don't really get from painting yeah well that's why i mean and frankly that's one of the reasons i i I, when i started at the art academy i started as painter and i did i think a whole year um with that as my emphasis in my sophomore year you know like I I had already begun taking a lot of painting classes and at a certain point I was like, I don't, it's not that I don't like painting. I don't like all the work around painting. I don't like making canvases and, and it's just like, it's so laborious. The, the, like the buildup to actually getting to paint is like surprisingly long of like, Oh, well you have to make your surfaces and you have to prepare your surfaces. And and there's just so much more materials that it didn't feel immediate in that way that I think drawing does. So to me, I was like, I can just run down to suitors and buy a sheet of paper (laughs) and I can roll the sheet of paper up and put it in the back of my car. And uh, so there was actually something very practical. I liked about drawing too, that it was like mobile. It was, it was just, faster and and it had that immediacy that you're kind of probably seeing in those Modigliani paintings where you're not like or those Modigliani drawings where you're seeing the difference between sort of something that is probably a little more labored and and worked on compared to something that was like quick and immediate and that immediacy is was what I liked and uh, yeah I mean there's a lot of cool places like the I think it's called the Drawing Center in New York is sort of like a museum gallery um that's dedicated to drawing and that's really rare like you don't actually see that many institutions that are built around it which kind of goes to show you that it isn't um 
something that has been around all that long in the history of art where it's like held up to the same esteem. And I think a lot of it, I mean, just to be like really, I think a lot of people have trouble looking at things that are not in color. (laughs) I think that's like a really, that's another maybe stumbling block is that a lot of drawings are monochrome. And, you know, I know that like, people love color. It's like when I when I do tours at the museum, it's like the number one thing I hear people talk about is color. And we have like a very different expectation of color today than people did in, you know, the 18th and 19th century. Expectations of what you want from a painting have changed a lot. And at this point, I mentioned my other favorite painter, uh, along with Medigliani, the American Edward Hopper. And the thing I like about Hopper, in showing my pedestrian uh, art views and uh, art taste here, is that I like the color. I like the color contrast, especially in his uh, outdoor landscape works where, you know, you see the sun against the shadows of like these barns and houses and streetscapes that he's painting. Yeah, I mean, they're very colorful. Again, 20th century. So, like, you know, a lot has changed. But, I mean, yeah. But uh, it's interesting because Hopper definitely uses color. But even by some people's standards, I could see people even thinking that's kind of dark. And it's really interesting to hear, like, people's takes on things because they're very dissimilar to what I perceive. (laughs) I don't think I have... I'm a very bad judge of what, like, the public would like, I think, because I based on my own expectation i I like very different things but yeah like yeah i think hopper does use a lot of um contrasty colors and and things like that the hopper we have at the museum is definitely pretty pretty saturated but i think when people look at paintings earlier than that um you know going back to the middle of the 19th century they're like oh it's so brown (laughs) you know um because we haven't had that um sort of uh, impressionist phase yet that happens at the end of the 19th century where like people start getting really crazy with color and that kind of has carried over. And, and now we sort of look at impressionism as just like the, the starting point to a lot of people's expectations of what painting looks like. It's like, oh yeah, well it should be as colorful as a Van Gogh or a Monet or something. And it's like, yeah, but that's, that's pretty recent. That hasn't been going on for that long, really. Russell also discussed being a tri-state native, uh, particularly uh, him being from Northern Kentucky. I'm from Northern Kentucky, so I'm uh, I'm from Alexandria originally. Um, so I uh, I uh, just you know I feel like you know when when a when an Ohioan has to cross the river into Northern Kentucky, they sort of lose their mind of like where am I? What is going on? And the same thing happens with my parents, where like my dad, if he had to drive in Cincinnati, could not like he would constantly get lost. So it's like this very small division that seems to make a very big difference to the the locals. (laughs) And we all know our way around our part of the tri-state. But as I've said before, going to another part of the tri-state for some of us is like going to the other side of the moon. Well, yeah. I mean, I certainly feel that way. But at the same time, I grew up in Northern Kentucky. So I know Northern Kentucky way better than I know the east side or west side of Cincinnati. But yeah, the the east side, west side and all the different sides of Cincinnati are also like a huge gulf for anyone living there. I remember I used to work somewhere on... um, on uh, Beachmont and I would tell like I would be talking on the phone to somebody on the west side and when I told them where we were they would act like I had just said we were in you know Paris or something <laughs> like the idea of of getting to Beachmont Avenue was so insane to them <laughs> and then getting back to his art academy days uh, well what do you do with a degree from the art academy yeah I I I, I so I was on the fine art side so we definitely I think most people don't have any sort of dream. Like you're, you're kind of like, I have no idea what I'm going to do with this degree. Like what, what is I'm going to, I mean, what do people really need people with drawing degrees? Um, and so I, when I graduated, actually, so while I was at school, I actually worked in the museum library, um, for all, almost, I started my, the middle of my freshman year. So I was in the library for about four years working in the museum and then when I graduated, I that was a work-study program, so I couldn't keep doing that. So I went and worked for a nonprofit arts organization called Happen, Inc. I was with them for about, about 10 years. And honestly, I think I could probably got that job, I mean, both because I had art background, but also because I had this, like, theater background, too, um, that I was comfortable being dressed up like 
you know, aliens and cowboys and doing whatever <laughs> and like, you know, had no dignity. So I didn't mind being, you know, hiding in, in a closet in some elementary school for like 20 minutes before I popped out and scared a bunch of kids. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I did that for 10 years and, but while I was there, I was also still working with the museum because we would go and do programs at the museum and the person who I was often, uh, was my liaison at the museum. Uh, she let me know she was leaving and I started thinking, hmm, <laughs> this could probably be a job I could do. And so that's how I sort of uh, worked my way back into the museum at that point um, and have been there. It'll be eight years coming up in March. So that'll be like my second stint has been eight years and then plus the four years in college. Uh, collectively, I have, you know, close to 12 years in the museum. So what is exactly Russell's title and what does he do at the museum these days? Oh, uh, that's a good that's a good question. I'll have to stop and think about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, my title is Associate Director of Interpretive Programming. <laughs> well, I know a title that, yeah, is about as confusing as it is long. Yeah, so what that really means uh, is I I do... It's changed a lot, actually, since I started, and I didn't start with that title, but um, I've, I've kind of been promoted a few times and, and, and changed titles a little bit here and there, but I kind of started working mostly on family programs and uh, mostly doing art-making programs. Then I've sort of taken on other things like lectures. And in recent years, I started the museum's podcast, uh, Art Palace. So that's been something that I've been kind of adding into my job. And then since we've been in lockdown and pandemic, I've been doing a lot more video work as well. So that's kind of becoming a new part of my job is editing and producing videos for the museum as well. Of course, things are in flux at the museum these days, as they are everywhere, as we're coming out of the pandemic. So Russell went over uh, the current hours of the museum. That is really important. Yeah. So um, maybe I should be general because right now it's right now at, at the moment we're recording this. The hours are Thursday. We're open Thursdays, Fridays and Sundays. Um, or I'm sorry, we're open Thursdays through Sunday. Um, Thursdays were open late from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Friday through Sunday, we're open 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. But yeah, registration is really important right now because um, we do have limited capacities and the, the museum has been selling out a lot on the weekends. So yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like, well, it's great for, you know, it's wonderful to see that many people are, are very excited to visit. Um, a lot of this has to do with the Duvenek exhibition that just opened um, a little bit ago. And that's been really popular. And so I think a lot of people are are coming to see that. And But we are actually turning away a lot of people at the door right now that just show up expecting to get in. And we're like, sorry, uh, you we, we're, we're out of space right now. And uh, so I, I think... Thursdays and Fridays are your better days to get in right now, but I think we are going to extend those hours very soon, too. Darren noted that it's probably not like a movie theater when you were a kid and your buddy's going to sneak in the side door. <laughs> uh, huh? Yeah, probably uh, none you wouldn't go notice that. <laughs> we have pretty tight security everywhere, so uh, you don't, there aren't a lot of like, uh, you know, left open doors or windows that people can crawl in. Uh, the uh, The our, our education center, the Rosenthal Education Center right now uh, does have like take home art kits for families. So uh, even though you can't stop in and make something in person, uh, make sure to drop by so you can pick up a little bag of, of goodies that you can take with you. And popular though it is, some folks don't realize how old our museum is. Well, we are. I mean, I don't know if this is like things that people don't really know about us, but we are actually like a really old museum. Um, so I think that's like kind of surprising to a lot of people. I, you know, every once in a while, I, I'll go out into the community and do like, you know, some sort of um, outreach or something. Or, you know, I've stood at tables in, you know, Washington Park before handing out brochures and things like that. And I've had a lot of people come up to me and go, oh, is this a new museum? And I go, well, no, actually, uh, we've been in our building since 1886. Um, and so, you know, even in the like sense of museums in the country, that's pretty old. A lot of, you know, museums like the Louvre, I think, uh, was founded in the late 1700s. So they've got us beat by maybe 100 years. 
But uh, when you look at the other museums that were kind of popping up around at that time in the country and like Philadelphia and New York and all of those uh, major cities, uh, we weren't very far behind them. You know, it was really a lot, had a lot to do with the Women's Art Museum Association, um, which was a group that just basically said, we want to have a museum in this city. And they worked hard uh, to make sure that happened. Uh, so, you know, that's that's kind of, I think, a lot of surprising, uh, sorry, that's surprising to a lot of people just to like learn that this museum that they maybe have never been to in some people's cases or or just kind of take for granted is is actually a really you know, impressively old museum in their city. Darren also made a historical note uh, saying that for a time, the museum was known as the Art Palace of the West shortly after it opened in the late 1800s. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's all these kind of like, and that's where actually, so the title of, of my podcast is called Art Palace. And that's based on this maybe somewhat apocryphal uh, legend that we were called the Art Palace of the West. Um yeah, so it, which always makes me laugh the idea of Cincinnati being the West, but I guess that kind of gives you a sense of like the time, like well, yeah, that was the West at that time. Um, but then I was talking with our archivist, and he's a little dubious of this expression because he's only seen it used much, much later in time by one of the directors in like the '60s or '70s. I can't remember who 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 threw out this phrase in that same way of saying, oh, we were known as this, but he's never seen it written anywhere before that. Uh, So I love that detail of like, well, maybe we were called this. I don't know. Like, (laughs) or maybe it's a little bit of myth making uh, on our own part. (laughs) Russell then talked a little bit about how the museum's early acquisitions were made. Yeah, it's it is like, I mean, that is one of the fascinating things about how museums are built. And like a lot of times when you go to a museum and you're seeing like what's on their walls, it is a reflection of essentially this, the tastes of the city at that time um, when those works were, you know, were were collected, because a lot I would say. I don't know. I I, I, don't, I shouldn't say this because I don't know the stats, but I feel like w- as I walk around and look at labels, most of the things I see on the walls were donated, like by just private, you know, donors who lived in the city, were wealthy, were art collectors, and they wanted this to be public. And so they donated their work to us. That's, I would say, a big, big chunk of the work. And if you are ever <laughs> curious it is always written on every label like if there even if it's the the smallest little label it will tell you how that work came to the art museum um and it'll have a little number after it that's the accession number and and for us the accession number is always the year that it was a, accessioned into the museum a period and then like the number after that is like what whatever order it was that year so it might say like 1996.200 that would be the 200th artwork we acquired in 1996 a lot of times people look at that number and assume it's like a price and it's not so uh just want to set this record straight yeah but to me it is fascinating because i look at it and i go oh occasionally you will see a, a date like we have this giant benjamin west painting that was i definitely donated and it was it's from 18 i think the year on it is like 1882 is the year it was donated which is fascinating to me because i go i I see that and i go wait the building didn't exist until 1886 um so the museum was founded in 1881 and the museum started collecting work before we even had a building and a lot of that work was displayed at music hall which had just recently been finished music hall is like a few years older than us and so some of those works that were being collected at that time were being put on kind of temporary display and in the meantime while the museum was being built so a big chunk of it is donations the museum does make purchases as well um so that's another part of it so you'll see a lot of times it'll say museum purchase which is just we're using our own money to buy art Um, and then other times you'll see purchase of you know whatever fund so a lot of times there's money given to us specifically to buy money or, or i'm sorry money given to us to buy particular artworks and that, those stipulations can be very specific. You know, we've been given gifts recently where um, we can only buy, use that money to buy works from India, 
Iran, Pakistan, and places like that. So like we've had very specific funds given to us and and we can't spend that money on anything else if that's what it's dictated. I think we even had money given to us one time that was like a donor said he kept he he was sick of going into the galleries and seeing burnt out light bulbs and so he gave us money to buy light bulbs. <laughs> And, 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 but of course it's like kind of silly because, you know, if you didn't, if you denote money to be used only for light bulbs, maybe the problem is we don't have enough people to change the light bulbs. Not that we don't have light bulb money, you know, like, but we have to follow the like letter of, of those donations very specifically. So it's like when somebody says you have to collect this, this money is for purchasing work. That means it can only be used for purchasing. It can't be used for like conservation or for storage because that's another big expense of a museum is like storing art we have a ton of art and like we keep collecting it and so that means we have to find places to put it (laughs) and how many pieces currently are in the art museum's collection oh gosh that i have no idea um i really i wouldn't even want to fathom a guess. I, I don't even want to say because I'm, I'm sure it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's just really hard and more than five, definitely more than five. I just, I have no sense of it. I mean, I, 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 because it's not part of my job, first of all. So I don't, I, I don't do that. So I really only see the things that they make a big deal about, which, you know, every year we acquire certain things and, you know, they'll always put out like, in the annual report, like, Oh, these are some of the major new acquisitions of the year, but there's countless others. And when you factor in that, like a lot of times we're buying a lot of prints and photographs and things like that, that, I mean, I have no idea. And when you factor in donations, it's just, I I couldn't, somebody could give you that number, but that person is not me. (laughs) Darren then asked about the big Chihuly glass sculpture. That's I believe in the lobby of the museum, right when you enter the facility. Well, it was definitely, I mean, the the piece was already made because that piece was made for his series that was um, uh, chandeliers that hung over the Venice canals. So I don't know if you've ever seen like images of those, but he built these like structures that went over the, the Venice canals. And so he had this exhibition that was like spread around the city of Venice um, and then that piece was purchased for the museum. Let me or let me look here. I can find out because we've got this. So that was a museum purchase. And it's one that has a very long list of names of with funds provided by blah, 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 blah. So, um, so yeah, again, it's like these, you know, probably specific money given for these purposes. But um, yeah, that's uh, so basically the museum bought it uh, from from Chihuly and then his team came to install it and it definitely doesn't look exactly like it looks in those original uh, pictures of it in Venice. So I think it's more of like it's a loose structure and then they're able to sort of reconfigure it however they needed to 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 fit in the space. So um, it's it's made up of hundreds of, of pieces and it's it's got this like kind of metal it looks like an upside down christmas tree inside uh that has little like spikes and things sticking off of it that all of those pieces get tied to um so i have seen footage of them building it and then what's really fascinating is it is dusting that thing you can imagine is not easy so when our conservation team dusts it it's really funny because they have to like they usually have two cherry pickers on either side. It like hangs over the the front desk. So that's already a challenge because there's a big piece of architecture in the middle of the way. And so then they usually have like some sort of large tarp hanging underneath the two cherry pickers so that in the case anything were to fall off in the dusting, it would be caught by that. And so I want to say they use like a, a simple like solution of water. I don't know if there's anything else in it. Um, and they spray it and then they use uh, Swiffers, uh, <laughs> like Swiffer dusters to to get in and uh, and dust all of those little like nooks and crannies around the Chihuly. And the museum sells stuff like the library sometimes does to raise money to acquire more stuff. Um, we have, so that's called deaccessioning. So works do get deaccessioned from time to time. Um, it's pretty, it's very rare, um, but it does happen. And I don't know if there are stipulations a donor can say about that. Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know if you can really make that kind of statement because at the same time, we don't want 
we are still want some control of the collection. So if, you know, like, for instance, there are lots of things in the museum that were given in the very early days of the museum that are not typically what an art museum would collect. And I think some of those might have already been deaccessioned. I don't know the specifics, but, you know, I know we used to have a shrunken head in the collection. And yeah, so one of the first things they would do when you were a new employee is they would take you and, and show do a tour of art storage, and they would love to show you the shrunken head because it was so, such a weird thing. And I don't even know if we still have it. Like that would be an object that I could see being deaccessioned because what are, we, we're never going to show a shrunken head, right? Like it's not ever going to happen. And those types of works might get deaccessioned. But there are times where other, even just paintings and things, sometimes people say, look, this is not really important to our collection or, you know, this is this this is time to go. Like I was talking about space. That's that's a major issue. There's a lot of time and energy put into storing artworks and to making sure that they are being kept up and not degrading in quality. So that happens. It's pretty rare in general. Like most museums are constantly running out of space because they're not deaccessioning works anywhere close to the rate that they're acquiring works. So it's pretty uncommon, but deaccession does happen. Yeah, and there are there are some pretty famous cases. I I can't remember any specifics now of of institutions selling works that people were upset about because you know like we thought this was a really important part of our museum and we're you know we can't believe you would sell this, but you know, ultimately that's the decision of the museum and to make in those cases. Usually. I've always wondered about not only our art museum, but art museums around the country is do they try to collect uh, a painting by each important artist or concentrate on one artist and have a bunch by that particular artist? Yeah. Um, so I think like in the case of, of like we might look for artworks that we definitely don't have representation by like a, a good example of this was um, a few years ago, we purchased a Georgia O'Keeffe painting and that was seen as a really big hole in the collection. Like we don't own a Georgia O'Keeffe painting. This is a major, major important artist of American art of the 20th century. Why don't we have one, you know? And again, a lot of that is like, well, a lot of the work we collected were, were donated by, Art, uh, by people who lived in Cincinnati and they collected that work. Um, and we, they probably bought their work when it was not as expensive and now it's increased in value. And now buying a, a George O'Keefe painting is incredibly expensive for anybody to do, even a museum. We, you know, that was an area we saw, oh, we have a hole. So I definitely think that is a big important thing where the museum is trying to fill our holes. Like, if we only had one Modigliani painting, you know, I could see maybe them saying, oh, we would like to buy another if we felt it was a really significant purchase or, or a really significant piece in the collection that would add something to the collection. But on the other hand, they might say, hey, we're never going to probably display more than one Modigliani, right? So would we, need, you know, it, it really depends on what the painting is, its significance, how it affects the other things that we're displaying and, and what we're trying to, basically, what's the story we're trying to tell here? So yeah, I mean, there are, you know, obviously areas of our collection that we need to fill in with more more works of a certain type. And so that that is a lot of times what's happening. Still, though, we still acquire new Rookwood all the time. I'll hear about, oh, we've got a new piece of Rookwood. Well, like, nobody has a bigger Rookwood collection than us at this point. But I don't think we're collecting it at the same volume that we were, you know, in the early days. And again, a lot of those pieces that we have in the collection, if you look, it's like donated by Rookwood, donated by Mariah Longworth Nichols Store, the founder of Rookwood, or donated donated by other artists and things. So a lot of that collection was given to us. But yeah, we definitely we have the most extensive collection of Rookwood. So at this point, there's probably not a ton of things we don't have. But you know, maybe they do. Somebody sees this example of a vase that's like, oh, this is a really unique type of glaze that uh, we don't have any examples of this. And as the biggest collection of Rookwood, we should have this. So in that instance, I could see that being a case where somebody would be like, yeah, we need this because it's a hole in this vast collection that we have. Of course, many museums have more work in storage than they do out on actual display. So we're curious uh, to what that percentage was with the Cincinnati Art Museum, what's on display versus what's in the archives. Oh my gosh. Uh, so I, I'm not sure of that percentage. I've heard in the past, like people say it's something like five or 6% of the work 
is you're seeing about five or six percent of the work, I believe. And does stuff get rotated in and out frequently? So it it just really depends. Like you know, uh, it's really hard to say. Give it like a an overall answer. I mean, some galleries stay pretty static for a really long time, and then uh, something will happen, and we'll you know redo a gallery and it'll get switched over. So it happens kind of slowly. I mean, there's obviously certain galleries that get changed out constantly. Special exhibition spaces are the the obvious one that get changed, you know, every few months. Um, but then we also have things like print uh, displays that get changed, you know, maybe every three months because they are light sensitive. Um, and then you know, different curators might decide, oh, we need to, we need to do a refresh on, on this. I would say a lot of galleries, you know, they stay installed in roughly the same way for about a year at least. And then maybe it, they get kind of rotated around, but it just kind of depends on who's the curator in that area and what else they're working on. You know, if a curator's working on a really big exhibition, uh, a special exhibition, they're maybe not going to be focused on reinstalling one of their permanent galleries but like recently we did a pretty big refresh of one of our american art galleries and it it, it got a complete overhaul with a lot of new work installed completely repainted and so that was exciting to see because that was a gallery that had stayed roughly the same maybe a few new paintings come in and out you know every year you'll see a, a little bit of a switch and it's hard too because sometimes they'll they'll make a switch and then of course we'll hear people complain too because oh you took down my favorite painting oh i can't believe i you know so you can't you know you're always it's i know it's hard because they want to show new things especially with you know like i said so we have 67,000 works of art in our collection and you're seeing a fraction of that and so you know, we want you to see new things, but then that means there's only so much space. So for a new thing to go out, that means something else has to come down. And, you know, you're always breaking a, a person's heart when you take something away. <laughs> How does the Cincinnati Art Museum compare size-wise to other museums in the region? Mm, I mean, I, w- I mean, I always think of us as a medium-sized museum, right? Like we are... I think we are, you know, obviously, if you're comparing us to the Metropolitan Museum of Nar- uh, Museum of Art, we are much, much smaller than them. But for a Midwestern size museum, like, yeah, we're we're pretty good, you know. Like, we, we <laughs> we're, we're not, it's it's a, it's a good collection. It's a good size. I, I, I personally, I love the size of our museum because I think it's very manageable. And it's always funny when I hear people come in and go, "Oh, it's so big," and I think, "Is it?" Like, I, to me, it doesn't feel that big. Again, especially if you're comparing it to something like the Met, you know, or something insane like the Louvre. Like, that's an outlandish experience of trying to like walk around the Louvre and just like, where am I? You know, you, you would spend a week trying to get around that place. So yeah, you know, we're, we're in Ohio, we're, we're definitely smaller than say like Cleveland and some other museums near us, but we're, you know, we're probably like Indianapolis We're we're similar size and a lot of museums and in, in cities, you know, you kind of expect the size of the city to reflect the size of the museum. And that's pretty true. Like, we're a much bigger museum than, say, the Speed in Louisville, which would be kind of a nearby museum. So we do have definitely a bigger collection and a, and a bigger footprint than, say, the Speed. But they're also, like, a medium-sized museum, you know, little a little smaller. So Darren then asked what the museum had in its collection by one of his favorite artists, Chuck Close. Um, we have prints by Chuck Close, but we don't have any paintings by Chuck Close. Um, I definitely am pretty sure. Let me let me just verify that really quick. I've got the like collection here uh, on the website. Yeah, we, it looks like we have uh, th- at least uh, three prints by him. But uh, yeah, no no paintings. I, I, I was pretty sure of that because that's one of those people that if we had a Chuck Close, I'm pretty sure it would be on view. But again, we haven't had a contemporary curator in a, a pretty long time. So that's another thing that without, you know, a, a person dedicated to purchasing that art, we don't end up making as many contemporary purchases as we might in other areas. But that's not to say we don't con- purchase contemporary art. We do. A lot of times that's been in recent years coming straight from the director who sort of becomes a stand-in for that area and has been interested in certain works and says, oh, you know, I want to buy this piece. You know, we've been actually purchasing, we just purchased some new sculptures for the art climb, the new stairs at the museum. So we've been purchasing some contemporary, yeah, so we've been purchasing contemporary sculpture for 
outdoors, um, which is something we don't, you know, haven't done in a while. We haven't been adding a lot of new outdoor sculpture. And then we also have been using um, some works on loan from Pyramid Hill Sculpture Park. So there's some of their works also on the art climb, which is pretty amazing. Darren then asked about the Andy Warhol Pete Rose print. Well, I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know if uh, the, the Warhol Pete Rose, I don't know if I would think of that as like a thing people come to see maybe they do i don't know i i feel like it's such a weird intersection of like two interests that don't normally overlap maybe of like warhol and baseball i mean it's an interest i, I think we've, we've done some programs actually trying to sort of connect those two worlds and it always seems a little like weird because the people who are really into baseball are maybe less interested in learning about warhol and vice versa so um yeah, it's a strange piece. I mean, that piece is a commissioned piece. So the museum basically asked Warhol to make it. So to me, the more important Warhol we have in the museum is the soup can, uh, which is right now across the way, which this is, you know, one of his original 100 soup cans that were on display where he just had them all lined up like in a supermarket. So historically, when I look at these two pieces, I go, well, the soup can is the more important piece. But I know people go in and they go, Pete, it's great. It's big. It's colorful. I love it. Of course, to some folks, particularly us in Cincinnati, the soup can piece and the Pete Rose piece are of equal importance. No, and, and don't don't let it break your heart too much. I mean, if you like the piece, you like the piece. But it was like a, it was a commission piece. There are actually quite a few commission pieces from around that same time that were made when the museum underwent renovations. I, and uh, so like our Felix Gonzalez Torres piece that runs around the actually nobody knows it's there. People walk right by it. It's actually in the lobby near the the Chihuly. And it's all these words written around the, the top of the the uh, near the ceiling. And it's a really interesting piece when you learn more about it. But a lot of people just have no idea it's a work of art. Um, but that was also a commission piece. And it's one of my favorites. But yeah, as far as pieces that people come I don't know if people, I don't know what, mo- it's kind of funny when you say that, I'm realizing like, I don't know why people come, <laughs> you know, I don't really know. I mean, what I think most people would probably make sure they saw if they got in the building would be the Van Gogh, because it's actually, I mean, it. The Monet is pretty popular too. Yeah, the Monet is nice, but I feel like in in terms of like, for me, like I've seen, I've seen a lot of better, man- <laughs> I've seen a lot of better Monets. I mean, I like our Monet, but I'm just being honest. Um, but I, I think our Van Gogh is as good as any Van Gogh I've ever seen. I, I think it really is. Uh, Undergrowth with two figures is really impressive. And, and it's like, this is one of the last paintings he made, you know, this was made a few months before he committed suicide. So it's also like made at a really, you know, important time in his life that we pay a lot of attention to as he was like painted it in the hospital. So yeah, I, I think that painting really is amazing and it is really exciting to look at with people and to watch them sort of discover it. And it is really fun to watch people who are in the museum and don't know it's there to go like, wait, is that a real Van Gogh? And you go, yeah, <laughs> like people sometimes are sort of shocked that it's there and you go, yeah, this is, this is the real deal. So it, that's, that's, that's definitely one of the things people shouldn't miss. The, the sort of hidden gem to me that I always tell people they shouldn't miss is um, the Damascus Room, which is this uh, Syrian period room on the first floor that is like a walk-in environment. And now that I'm saying this, I realize I think we don't let you walk in it right now because it's so tiny that we basically can't safely let people go in during the pandemic. So... Yeah, the last time I was in there, I'm pretty sure I had a sign up in front of it. So I, I, I'm not sure what the case is right this minute. But uh, once once we're able to sort of maybe safely go into smaller spaces, that would be the piece I would say you should not miss. Because it's just to me, it's overwhelming because it's this richly ornamented room and you go in and like every surface is this like intricately painted and carved and ornamented and it's it's really beautiful and people don't find it all the time because it's hidden in this little corner and it's really kind of tricky to get to for a lot of people as they walk through the museum it's easy for them to miss it um so that's always my like hidden gem that like don't miss the damascus room and of course earlier russell mentioned that he produces the museum's podcast 
Yeah, no, it's the it's the museum's podcast. It's called Art Palace. Um, I uh, we've been a little bit slow on episodes lately, as as I've been making a lot more video work. That's kind of taken a, away a lot of my time. But the typical format of the show was was we would have on guests to talk about. Um, just learn about them. Like, Hey, what do you do? Like, what's your deal? Um, and then we would look at an, a work of art that's somehow connected with them on, you know, like the, the first episode we ever did was with Dean, uh, Regis from the observatory. Dean Regis, friend of this show, go back and check out his episode. Yeah. And so then we had, we looked at a work of art, uh, that was by Anna England that kind of related to, the cosmos. Um, and Dean's been on two times. We also looked at a picture that was like we, in our photography collection, we have uh, NASA photographs as well, which is like a really cool thing. And so we looked at a photo that we have that's of, uh, I think it was from the lunar landing in, uh, the first lunar landing, I believe. And so that was, um, exciting to look at with Dean because he has all this, history and facts about it that I would never know. So a lot of times I'm trying to get people who may, may not have like an art historical background, but bring something else to it. So, you know, we've had the ballet look at our Degas paintings or, or um, they actually, they looked at our Degas, Degas bronzes with us. And, you know, again, she saw so many things about this that I would not know as a person who does not know anything about ballet. Uh, it was really fascinating to, to get her perspective. Darren asked if Ohio native Neil Armstrong possibly donated anything to the museum as far as uh, things from space. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I I don't know. Um, I can't think of anyone that is like, oh, this is a really impressive donor. Um, yeah, I don't remember. I don't, I don't think Neil Armstrong gave us those, but I, I could be wrong. I'm looking up. I'm trying to find to, to see if I can find anything. I know we have this one that I really like that's like made up of little tiny photographs. It almost looks like a David Hockney photo collage, um, but it's like from NASA. Um, and that one was just a museum purchase. So that was one we just we bought. So I can't remember the the lunar landing one was, uh, you know, I don't I, I don't know. Do you think Neil Armstrong collects photos of like uh, that stuff? I mean, maybe he does. I don't know. <laughs> I think it was at this point I had mentioned that I just recently seen a documentary on the Apollo, I believe it was, 8 mission that went around the moon but didn't land on the moon. And that's where that picture Earthrise comes from that's so famous of the Earth rising over the moon. And we talked about that for a minute. Yeah, I wish I could. Re I, I, I'm, I'm bad at remembering exactly what we've talked about on the podcast because I'm like, I'm trying to rack my brain to to remember any of the facts about that. But I, I once uh, once I'm done with them, I, I had a friend tell me the other day, I was like, oh, I was just listening to an episode and you were talking about this. And I was like, I we talked about that? I couldn't even remember doing it. It's like once I once I post them, I'm like, I don't remember what we talked about. I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of space and more non-traditional art things, how far in advance are the special exhibitions scheduled? Usually, so yeah, I mean, special exhibitions are, are it can really be a big, uh, I genuinely like, uh, because it can be anywhere we have, we have had some pretty major special exhibitions that came together remarkably fast and very like surprisingly quickly. Um, Burning Man uh, a few years ago was one of those. So I don't know if you got to come out to see that, but that was something that... I want to say happened within a year um, where I started hearing murmurings of it. Like, and I, I remember being like this, this summer, like this summer, because it seems so crazy uh, to me, but uh, generally, well, I mean, again, we're, we're encyclopedic museum. So we try to have a little bit of everything. So for us, um, that's something that, you know, we wanted, I don't know. I mean, I, I never heard that they wanted it. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure. I, you know, who knows? They probably already had plans for that time. They could have done it. But I mean, it was, it was a museum. It was an exhibition that had already been organized for another museum. So in that case, it was us sort of working with the museum and the Burning Man, uh, organization to sort of adapt it for our space and, um, and, and sort of, how can we bring this in? And, and, you know, we couldn't bring in every single piece because we didn't have the space for every single thing that was shown in DC. But that was one that happened really fast. But then there are other ones that are like five years in the works, you know, where, you, you know, a lot of times, so say an exhibition like uh, the Duvenek exhibition, that's been going on for years and years and years. And that's one we're curating. Um, so, 
you know, I know Julie's been working on it on some level for, for years, but you know, things always ramp up as it gets closer and closer. And then it's like full steam ahead. But on some level, she was probably beginning the, the planning phases, writing a catalog. And, you know, that's another thing that happens with a lot of these exhibitions is there's catalogs written for them. So that's like, a whole nother part of it, which is like publishing a book on top of this, which has its own schedules. And, you know, um, those have pretty big, you know, lead times that you have to have everything submitted by to allow for everything to be printed and published and available for sale. And a lot of times we're working on exhibitions with other museums. So sometimes, you know, we will kind of co-curate an exhibition with like another museum. So we worked with um, the Kyoto Costume Institute um, on that um, uh, kimono exhibition we had a while ago. And another museum, I think in San Francisco, I'm forgetting who the third museum was now. But that was an instance where, you know, we have three different institutions working on this, and then it's going to be on display in, in several locations, and we can send that out to tour um, as well. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's like the logistics of that is something probably a lot of people don't think about where, you know, there are exhibitions that we're bringing in that we maybe didn't curate that were pretty much done. They were already built as like a special exhibition for another museum. And then we were able to work with them to bring it here. And then there are other ones where we're really closely involved. And I know to the general public, they don't really necessarily know which is which and and where those edges are. But on some level, you know, there's a lot of work that always goes into adapting that uh, piece for or that exhibition for our space. And again, like sometimes we don't have space for everything. Sometimes we have works in our own collection that we'd like to include because we think they add something to the story. So that's something that happens, you know, we brought in the uh, terracotta army. I don't know if you remember that for a, a few years ago. Like that was like a really big undertaking where it was like working with the government of China um, to bring in uh, these figures and and you know very strict regulations as you might imagine on all of that too. So uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely a lot of work and it's 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 pretty crazy. Uh, even just like loaning artworks is this whole other thing. Like a lot of times people go, oh, where's where's this painting? Well, it's on view right now in a museum in Japan. Like for a while, the, the Van Gogh was in Japan. And part of the reason, it, you know, it was there is because, you know, it was a lot of times we're making agreements with other museums, like we'll loan you our painting for so long and then we get your painting for so long. I think that's how we came to have American Gothic at the museum for for that special exhibition a few years ago was basically we loaned them our Grant Wood for a pretty good long period of time for an exhibition. And so they actually agreed to let us have American Gothic, which I think nobody expected them to say yes to. <laughs> One of the neater aspects of loaning artwork between museums is sometimes museum personnel have to go with the museum's painting to the other institution. Uh, but unfortunately, Russell says he hasn't had a chance to do any of that. Yeah, museum loans are a whole world. And then I, I unfortunately never get the exciting job of being a courier but people in our registration department and in our uh, design and installation department, often they get to go babysit a painting uh, as it travels. So they might be a courier and go with an artwork. And so some of our uh, very lucky staff and registration have been all over the world because they get to travel with these paintings as they go to, you know, Amsterdam or, you know, wherever. And they're like, oh, I'll just hop on and, you know, co- conveniently, then they, they'll take a few days off uh, <laughs> to, to spend some time while they're there. So it's like, it's a nice deal. So Darren wondered and was trying to picture this whole thing. It's like the painting sitting next to the museum employee while it's on the airliner. (laughs) I think that, yeah, I've never done it. So I I don't know the specifics, but I believe like it can be, it can be different, like depending on the type of artwork and what the value insurance values are, where like sometimes I think they are like next to it the whole time. And then other times, you know, it is in cargo and they come meet it and travel with it. But uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of folks are pleasantly surprised at the variety of exhibitions that the Cincinnati Art Museum brings to town. Yeah, I mean, I think we do. I think, yeah, I think you can see that. I mean, Terracotta Army is 
sort of in line with something you might see at the museum center. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people went to the museum center to see it because if that happens all the time where we will have an exhibition that people assume is like a museum center type show and, and vice versa and people get confused and they go to the wrong museum. Um, so, you know, yeah, like we have the art world and art museum world has blockbuster shows, right? Like you have, your terracotta armies, your Van Goghs. I mean, you just put the name Van Gogh in something and a lot of people are going to show up. It doesn't really matter <laughs> what what the rest is. Um, so, yeah, I think you'll see in most years we have a, a balance of that. Like, there's going to be the things that we think are really popular and might bring some people in. And then we might have things that we feel are important from, like, the scholarly side of things, that this is important work that we want to support um that's coming from within um it's just a mix you know and and we try to do a balance of those things that you know has a little bit of everything that's going to make a lot of people happy but then we also kind of know like uh eh, you know numbers aren't everything and it's fine we feel this is an important show we want to we want to do it so yeah you, you'll definitely see that and i think we've had a lot more kind of blockbuster exhibitions in the past few years than we did in the past and a lot of that is economics right like you'll look at what the museum exhibitions were after 2008 when every you know the economy took a nosedive and they got really small like we didn't have these really big terracotta armies and van goghs and stuff they were they were much smaller after that um and then it took a while and we started building back up and and started doing more of those so you know it just kind of like goes with what's the environment like what's What's the economy like and how is that going to affect what we're doing? So what kind of exhibition would Russell like to see at the museum? What would be a thing? I mean, what I would like to see is like probably not a blockbuster, but I mean, actually, I think a painting, an exhibition I would love to see uh, would be like a Goya retrospective. And I bet that would be fairly, fairly popular. I think Goya has got a big enough name that you could get a lot of people in the door. That would be something I would love to see. Um, I, I was lucky enough to go to um, the Prado Museum in Madrid uh, last year, right right before the pandemic, basically. It was like the last museum I visited other than my our own. It's just amazing collection of Goyas there. He has uh, They have all the, the black paintings, which he made for himself. Like these are paintings that were like painted on the walls, like in his house, like that he never intended anyone to see. And they're like, you know, that's where Saturn eating his child comes from. You know, that that's one of the black paintings. There's like these paintings of like the witch's Sabbath. And it's this like huge thing with all these like scary figures. And I mean, they're, they're so unsettling. Like you walk in that room and everybody is just like a little freaked out because there's just such an energy to them that is like, this is weird. This is messed up. And uh, they were like probably the most amazing like uh, museum experience I've ever had was like walking around and seeing those those paintings. Um, they would never travel. But man, seeing something like that in the museum or just like any Goya, I kind of go crazy for. I, I just love Goya. Darren then brought up the artist Rothko. I, yeah, I think a lot. I, I think that would do. Yeah, that is true. Like, I, I do feel like Rothko is one of those painters that I know a lot of people who maybe aren't super familiar with a lot of art, but they do really like Rothko. So I think I think he does have like a pretty good appeal for a lot of people. I think a lot of people look at those paintings and they do work, even though, like you said, to I'm sure a lot of people are like what it's three stripes of color. What are you talking about? <laughs> but I think. I think there's something there that most people are able to connect with or, or a lot of people connect with, I should say. That would be exciting. Yeah, I, I think that would be fun. Darren suggested maybe trading some Rothkos with another museum like one might do with baseball cards. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. Like, I don't know if you I don't know if that's very likely. I don't know if anyone's going to I don't know if you can trade Rothkos like uh, baseball cards, but maybe like me. <laughs> We then discussed how some artists seem to be more available in terms of how much work is out there uh, than others. Well, there's probably, I mean, it just depends. Like there, there's probably actually, there might be more Picassos than you would expect just because the man made so much art. Like, I, had, I don't know if this is again apocryphal, but I'd always heard that the family basically 
kept stuff like in reserves that they would slowly release to the art market because if they had flooded the market with all of the Picassos that they had in storage, it would just, they would be worth nothing because there were so many of them that you kind of had to keep the trickle to, to keep the demand high. I don't know. There's probably more, there's probably more Picassos than you would expect just because He's not a he's not a painter that like made very few paintings. I mean, like we were talking about Van Gogh. Van Gogh was incredibly prolific. Also, made a ton of artwork, but he did it all within like ten years. Like he's like the Beatles. Like he's like everything is like within this really small time span. So again, there's like maybe not as much as you'd expect, just because he made it all in such a short time period. It's like those potato eater paintings that look nothing like the later work were only like 10 years earlier. It's, it's crazy. So yeah, that, that, that's interesting. There's probably a lot. I mean, there's probably a lot of really good art collection out there in the city that we don't know about. That's, that's a good point. I mean, for a lot of people, art is a smart investment. Uh, it's like they put their money into paintings, uh, because they'll like increase in value. So there's a lot of people who, are buying art simply as a way of like investing money basically. So there might be a lot of that happening, but of course they, you know, hopefully they made the right decision and and bought somebody whose work is going to increase. At this point, I went back and asked about the relationship of the Art Academy to the museum and how that kind of has worked out historically uh, since the museum's founding. Yeah. So the, yeah. So the museum, yeah. So it, it gets a little confusing. So when the museum was founded, Originally, the Art Academy was a part of the same museum association and was run by the same body. They split, I believe, in 1997 from the... So they split and became their own. It was like around then, if not exactly 90s, like sometime in the 90s, they they finally split and became two separate entities. So when Darren and I went to school, we were in the original Art Academy building, which is touching the museum, but we were not actually still the same organization anymore. So they had, you know, completely separate administrations and everything. And then they, the museum actually owned part of the building, I believe, downtown. And they kind of like swapped leases on the Mount Adams or the Eden Park building so that the Art Academy could move downtown and expand. Um, Because that building is was crazy. Like, I mean, I'm sure like, it was, I mean, it was fun. I love going to school there. It was like, in some ways, it was very magical and in, in like going to Hogwarts or something like this castle in a, you know, in the park. But uh, it also, you know, had no elevators or air conditioning or, you know, like a lot, a lot of practical things that a contemporary university sort of needs. So I can sort of understand why the Art Academy wanted to get out of there. And now that's where my office is. So my desk sits in the middle of the old Art Academy in the classroom where I, what would have been the classroom where I took like Vizcom one, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That's where my desk is. Except it's now completely open. Like there's no, so the the actual insides of the building are completely new. All of the all that remains is the shell. So the stones are there, but everything else is is all brand new. So it's like not the same building, but it is. It's it's very weird. Like at this point, I've spent more time in it in its new state, and I'll just randomly have these like flashes where I'm like, oh, this is this is the lounge, you know, this is where I used to watch judge Judy. Um, <laughs> and then of course, Russell and Darren reminisced about the old place. Did you just see, uh, Paul, the, uh, janitor just retired now. Yeah. I mean, I should, it's a janitor's a bit reductive. I think he was like, did everything like he was, you know, sort of their entire like maintenance, like knowledge. He was, uh, amazing. So I, I just saw that on their, uh, Instagram the other day. I couldn't believe it. I was like, he's just now retiring. I assumed that he had, he had, he had gone a long time ago. Um, but yeah, so we started as one organization split in two and then kind of now are, are no longer even physically close. Like we, we were for those few years, but you know, I'm glad I was there at the time I was because I actually really liked having the museum there as that, like place to go and and you know we would walk over during our art history classes sometimes and and uh i don't know i think it they still do 
class trips and stuff, but it, it definitely isn't the same kind of easy access where we would just go and, you know, spend a week there in, in a drawing class, drawing from sculptures and stuff like that. So That, of course, brought us to our coupon code, which the guest gets to choose, and Russell went with something uh, very simple. Well, since it was, uh, since you were just asking me about dream exhibitions, let's make it Goya. Larrig, CincinnatiArtMuseum.org for all your Cincinnati Art Museum needs. You can find the podcast that they do there as well, and of course, uh, find out how about you can visit the museum and what hours and so forth to get the, you know, the latest updates on all of that. And uh, I'm pretty sure we've used this uh, background music here, this playout song before. Uh, I'm almost 100% certain we have, but we talked about Modigliani, and I like the song, and you should get to know Book of Love. So for all of those reasons, uh, Modigliani by Book of Love is your playout song for Russell's interview. Now be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area, but still feel connected to the tri-state. Check out those Cincy Shirts podcast archives, of course. Go back 163 episodes, 164 with this one now back there. Do go back and enjoy them all. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. Find their music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find vintage cheese from great places like Philadelphia, Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. We just added another city yesterday. I think we added Akron. Now, we have a lot of different sports teams there, of course. You know, hockey, basketball, soccer, that sort of thing. Uh, old shopping malls, old restaurants, old TV shows and personalities like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is Goya. I don't have any songs about Goya to play as the playout song, but he is, he is the promo code. Goya, G-O-Y-A, like the artist or the beans, if you want to do it that way. You can think of it that way. All one word, uh, Goya, of course, because it's only one word. All uppercase, all lowercase, that part does not matter. You can alternate upper and lowercase if you want to be clever. And you can use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. You can do that too. Or you can go into our uh, physical stores. Uh, both are back open now. OTR, grand reopening just last week. You can get shirts printed on demand there. How about that, gang? And you can not only get them from the entire Cincy Shirts catalog, if you know there's a shirt like, say you want to go to a, a buddy's birthday party when everything clears up, and he lives in Detroit or Cleveland or Philadelphia, you can say, hey, could I get one of those Detroit or Cleveland or Philadelphia old school shirts printed for my buddy to take up there? Yes, you can. So go do that and over the Rhine. All right, and and you, you can use the podcast code. So I want to use the podcast code too, Goya, to take twenty percent off my purchase. All right. So uh, with that being said, I advise you as always to follow our social channels: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.